Welcome to COPcast from Climate Home News. I'm Carl Matheson, editor of Climate Home News and one of the hosts of this podcast. I'm joined by our deputy editor, Megan Darby. Hi, Megan. Carl, hello. We're coming towards the end of this COP um, and it's been a really kind of long and... uh, back and forth conference there's uh, one day officially to go but it's potentially going to push on into this weekend we're hearing Uh, on today's episode Megan's going to talk to Rachel Kite who's the head of the UN sustainable energy push first I wanted to thank our supporter Stockholm Environment Institute for reporters in the climate space it's really tough to get uh, accurate data and really good analysis and we really often rely on uh, think tanks and institutes like uh, the Stockholm Environment Institute, they're particularly good um, for accurate data. So for more information, go to sei.org. So what's going on today, Carl? Natalie, our colleague Natalie's done a story about the UK and Canada's Powering Past Coal Alliance. And there was a kind of interesting uh, line from that about the two cities in Australia, Australia's two biggest cities, Sydney and Melbourne, joining uh, the Powering Past Coal Alliance, um, which is really a a kind of interesting and uh, it's a repeat of what the Powering Past Coal Alliance have done over the last year in America where they've kind of gone around a, a very pro-coal government and found sub-national governments and cities and mayors to support them and, and join up to their alliance. So it's um, it's kind of like a, a divide-and-conquer technique, I suppose. Um, so that was really interesting. I heard there were some hecklers, though. Apparently so, yeah. So uh, Extinction Rebellion, who are a group that have emerged in the last month or so in the UK and are now... Um, active around the world uh, have uh, challenged uh, the energy minister Claire Perry, the UK energy minister, for her support of fracking. So they're kind of saying, well, you, you can't have it all to yourself. You know, you've got you've got to get off all fossil fuels, not just coal. So, and I also hear the UK has um, confirmed their bidding to host the uh, climate talks in 2020. That's right. As expected, uh, they've thrown their hat into the ring. Uh, we're also, or we've been hearing over the last months, Turkey and Italy are also interested, and even the UAE uh, interested in hosting the next European COP. But we'll see how that pans out. So something else that happened uh, that my colleague Sarah Stefanini's writing about just at the moment, and we'll have the story up soon, is a press conference given by the Chinese uh, head of delegation, Xi Jinping, uh, who just dropped a bit of a bombshell. He said that the Chinese would be willing to accept, quote, uniform rules. And that that's a really important development. This is something that kind of we talked about earlier in the, uh, in the conference uh, as being... Uh, a really a, a bit of a deal breaker for the US and for the EU. Um, China was pushing for a kind of differentiated uh, set of rules where developing countries had different rules from developed countries. That's now shifted. Um, we understand that there's been quite a lot of diplomacy going on, particularly from the EU side, and that the EU and China are actually working really close together. Um, so this could be one of the biggest shifts in the diplomacy of the conference. 
And I've, I've spoken to a couple of negotiators who are a bit worried about uh, what's known in these talks as Article 6, and it's all about uh, carbon trading across borders and how you account for um, uh, the emissions from, from each country, and, and potentially um, you know, one country could pay another country to reduce emissions and then count that towards their, uh, their own target. So um, it's a really complicated area, and... Uh, what negotiators are worried about is there's, there are certain loopholes that if they're agreed and if they go through uh, could undermine the Paris uh, temperature goals. What's the scale of this? Like, what are we talking about and how many tonnes of carbon? I mean, we're talking about billions of tonnes and there are lots of different like potential um, ways that this could happen. Uh, so it depends, you know, it's a kind of sliding scale um, from... Uh, from you know maybe just like a few percentage points um, like more emissions to uh, to yeah really billions of tons um, so yeah it's a, it's a sliding scale from just you know a few percentage points to completely blowing the chances of uh, meeting the 1.5 degree temperature limit. One person who won't be impressed if governments resort to accounting tricks to meet their climate goals is Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg, who's really been the breakout star of these talks, um, who's been just very much hammering home the message that it's her generation who will suffer most from climate change and politicians and policymakers and decision makers need to step up their act. She has released a video on social media calling for an all-out climate strike on Friday um, for everyone from school children to um, hopefully not the negotiators themselves because they've got work to do, but, um, but encouraging people to get out and, and show their policymakers and their politicians um, that they are rooting for a strong deal. We caught her earlier and here's what she had to say. Yes, yeah, so this, this meeting is basically our last chance to do something. I am hoping that we, we just kind of realise how that we are facing the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. We can no longer save the world by playing by the rules because the rules have to be changed. And so it's unfortunately we need to do something drastically because we need to reduce emissions so fast we don't understand that. Now, Megan's going to talk to Rachel Kite, who's the Special Representative of the UN Secretary-General and also the CEO of Sustainable Energy for All. Uh, Megan spoke to Rachel just as these talks wind into their final few critical days. Rachel Kite, um, you are here as you've been on platforms with ministers, you've been in backroom meetings, um, you are based in Washington DC, you're part of the establishment, but you've also got a pin on your uh, lapel with the Extinction Rebellion symbol. Um, so who are you? Are you an establishment power broker or a radical activist? Um, I'm an activist, diplomat, bureaucrat. Uh, I mean, I think that what's really interesting is that when it comes to climate and action and the sort of sense of urgency and emergency, it you know, you can be um, at home in my mum's WI or you can be uh, a minister or you can be a diplomat or you can run an international organisation like I do and you can have the same sort of sense of urgency. And what I see is that... Uh, 
you know, the division is not civil society versus government, government versus business. The lines cut across. I think that's uh, that's something that's changed over the years. And it feels like um, this year we've seen emissions break another record at the same time as um, the IPCC is warning more strongly than ever about the dangers of climate change. How do you cope with that dissonance? Yeah, I mean, there's no escaping the double whammy. Uh, well, it's probably a triple whammy, a quadruple whammy this 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 autumn because what the IPCC report did was, you know, lift up the petticoat and show that uh, it's not very pretty inside, right? We, we've, we're, we're not on track uh, for two degrees and 1.5 is technically possible to get there, but as currently organised as nation states and with the politics the way that it is, it's very difficult to imagine we're going to get there. And then I think in 2015, emissions had started to plateau and we were all like, oh, this could be it, this could be it. We were all excited and now they've started to creep up and then they've jumped again this year. And some people think that that's sort of a blip on the plateau and some people are worried that that's the beginning of another steep climb. But uh, we're in desperate trouble. And uh, the IPCC report took away any place to hide, took away all plausible deniability. You know, everybody signed this agreement, everybody's ratified it. Even the US is still in, even though they think they might be leaving. And so we've got to roll our sleeves up and we've got to get on with it. And we've got to figure out the things that work and then work out how to really scale those. That's policy that inspires R&D, that inspires innovation, that inspires emissions reduction. And we've just got to get on with it. There's a feeling, I mean, compared to Paris, that, like in Paris, there was such kind of star power, there was such high level political energy around it, there was real euphoria when the deal was done. Um, and compared to that, I mean, this year's efforts, definitely going into it, it felt like, you know, quite low energy, you're smirking. Um, <laughs> it, it, it felt quite low energy, you know, some like, so who is like behind the scenes, um, you know, pulling the, the, the levers and, and trying to um, drive ambition. I mean, t- tell me about the sort of backroom operation and how that all works. Well, I don't think we should be surprised that, um, you know, we've got to grind out, you know, the details of the agreement, etc. I mean, the way to think about it is that Paris was the wedding, right? I mean, and it was one of those big multi-day, multi-coloured, everybody's here, party, party, party. We didn't actually know that we were going to get the kind of agreement that we did, but we hoped to, and we celebrated, and it was an amazing moment of multilateral diplomacy. Three years on, we're into the marriage, right? And now we've got to make it work, right? We've got to pick up each other's socks, we've got to do each other's washing, you know, you come downstairs and there's dirty plates in the sink, you know, I mean, we, we got it. this is hard work now. And so we shouldn't be surprised about that. Now, who needs to do the hard work? I think the problem for these cops is that these are the environment ministry negotiators on climate change. And they are negotiating their interests in terms of equality, who does what, you know, who's going to be transparent. You know, if I'm going to be transparent, you have to be transparent, all of this kind of thing. Outside of this room, there are economies and they are powering along and they're either going to power along on the right trajectory, cut emissions, save lives, invest in resilience, or they're going to continue on the current trajectory and it's going to be more and more expensive for them to get back on track. And I think there's this huge dislocation between what's going on in the real economy, good and bad, and the negotiating hall. And as the pressure mounts, because of the IPCC report that says we've got no time, no place to hide, the dissonance between the two just becomes, at times, I think, a little intolerable. 
Yeah, and it's interesting what you're saying because we're seeing some more um, confrontational movements springing up in different parts of the world. So we mentioned Extinction Rebellion already. Um, there's been Sunrise Movement in the US. Um, one of the breakout stars of this COP has been Greta Thunberg, the 15-year-old uh, uh, Swedish activist who's calling every... Um, a man, woman and child out on strike, a climate strike tomorrow to tell their uh, um, politicians and, and um, decision makers that they need to do more about climate change. So um, will your kids be on school strike tomorrow? Um, no, my, I don't think my kids are on strike. I'm not sure it, Greta's message has spread all the way to the US, although I did put it up on Facebook. Um, but I have to tell you that middle school kids, my son's in middle school in the United States, I mean, they're out and they're, um, they're active on everything from gun rights to climate change. Uh, they've marched with me in science marches and climate marches. They'll march with me in the women's march in January. My daughter, who's still in uh, lower school, um, feels this issue profoundly. And they don't like me traveling, but they like that I'm here. I don't think these are confrontational movements. I think these are movements born of frustration with politics and frankly frustration with a lot of the traditional middlemen who are the environment movement and other movements who are frankly just as far away um, from uh, lower income or poorer communities that are living with bad air and bad water, uh, with young people who don't want to wait till next year or the year after but want action now, that immediacy and that urgency that young people feel. And, you know, as Polita Clark wrote in that great story last week in the Financial Times where she talked about, you know, middle-aged women turning out and doing things. I mean, I've got grey hair. I've been in this for a long time. There is a sense of real anger and a real frustration and I think shame that it was our generation that let it get this far. And that will turn you out. That will turn you out onto the street. Not to do anything confrontational and violent, but to say, I've had enough and I want action now. And I think that dialogue directly between government and citizens is something that we have lost and we need. That's it for Copcast. I'm Carl Matheson. Thanks to Megan Darby, Rachel Kite, our supporters of the Stockholm Environment Institute and our producer, Soila Aparizio. Don't forget to follow us on SoundCloud and on iTunes and where all good podcasts are held. Climate Home News is on Twitter and Facebook and you can subscribe to our newsletter by going to www dot climate change news dot com see you tomorrow